A person's last sayings are sometimes memorable and oftentimes revealing. It would seem the last words of a person, the last words that a person utters, would unveil the state of their heart at that moment, perhaps even the momentum of their entire lives. I'm sure up against the reality of one's death, it has to be a sobering experience. Face-to-face with the grim reaper is a challenging perspective. It causes a person to drop any pretense. It makes us brutally honest. And thus, last words can give you a glimpse behind the veneer of a man, like windows into his or her soul. For example, just before he died in 1891, the great circus showman P.T. Barnum made his last statement. He uttered these final words, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? It was a revealing statement. It kind of showed you what he was into. Show me the money. That's what he was concerned about. In 1603, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, she breathed her last, but before doing so, she made an offer that had no takers. She said, all my possessions for a moment of time. It seems at death's door, even all the world's treasure becomes worthless. It can't be traded for a single second. Time becomes more valuable. In 1942, proud actor and patriarch of a famous acting family, John Barrymore, he said to his friend, Die? I should say not, dear friend. No Barrymore would allow such a conventional thing to happen to him. Yet die he did. Barrymore's last words revealed both his arrogance and his ignorance. No one escapes their date with death. Louise, the Queen of Prussia, was a beloved monarch. After her death, she was hailed the ideal German woman. Yet tragically, in 1820, at the age, the young age of 34, Louise lay dying. She uttered her final words, I am the queen, but I have not the power to move my arms. She had become a woman relegated to immobility. She could order armies into battle, but she couldn't bring her own hand to her mouth. One more, the great British statesman Winston Churchill, who bravely steadied his English countrymen through the dark days of World War II. He died in 1965 at the age of 90. And just before slipping into a coma from which he never recovered, he uttered these final words, I am bored with it all. Even an illustrious life like Churchill's had no, held no ultimate meaning for him. He died in a state of boredom. Again, you can tell a lot about a person by taking heed to their final words. And this is why the last words of our Lord Jesus are so important. Even from the cross, while in excruciating pain and physical discomfort, he managed to steady himself so that he could utter seven final statements. And these were not random outbursts. For the most part, on the cross, Jesus quoted Scripture. He spoke to fulfill divine prophecy. His final words were well-timed declarations planned by God from before the beginning. Jesus' last words were the culmination of God's purposes from ages past. His sayings are like a time warp, a wrinkle in time, little glimpses into eternity. 
These final seven sayings of Jesus from the cross are windows into the heart and mind of Almighty God. And tonight on Good Friday, I want us to look afresh at Jesus' final seven sayings in their proper order. Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to both Luke chapter 23 and John chapter 19. Luke 23 and John 19. We'll refer to Matthew and Mark, but we'll turn to Luke and John. For from the cross, in a time frame of six hours, our Lord spoke forgiveness to his Jewish condemners. He gave hope to a thief. He provided comfort to his own mother. He suffered and endured a mysterious breach with his Father in heaven. He emptied himself completely. He announced that his mission had been finished. And then Jesus breathed his last and released his spirit to God. And he did it with five succinct statements that are jammed with incredible and far-reaching implications. Well, first, we read in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In the previous verse, we're told, when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. The crucifixion has begun. Hot spit and fresh blood rolled down Jesus' face. He's been abused. His body has been bludgeoned. Like an animal on a spit, Jesus thrashes to breathe. He squirms against the raw wood. Nails are now pounded through his metacarpals. Bones in his feet are splintered by the penetration of the spike. Dozens of sharp thorns puncture Jesus' brow. Imagine, too, the taunts that he endured. All along the path from Judgment Hall to Skull Hill, angry men tried to justify their hatred and injustice with reviling accusations. Even now on the cross, they keep attacking him by screaming provocations. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And again, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And yet rather than defend himself, Rather than bemoan his unjust plight, he focuses on the very folks who minutes earlier had cried, crucify him, crucify him. And amazingly, he prays to his Father in heaven for their forgiveness. Oh my, here is the heart of God. From the Garden of Eden, humanity has rebelled against their creator, and yet God has kept reaching and loving, and wooing, and longing for us to return. If the Jewish leaders had known God's heart, if they had seen what made Jesus tick, it would have never come to this. They would have fallen on their faces in surrender. Instead, they had been blinded by ignorance. And in a way that not one of us deserves, Jesus understood. For in his mind, he knew that we're all but dust. He showed compassion from a cross, a cross no less, from the least compassionate place. Jesus is tortured and executed, and yet he shows compassion. Our Lord cries to heaven 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And you can be sure his request was answered. Forgiveness fell that day. Of course, on the cross, in the context of the horrible events that transpired that day, when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, he was praying for the Jews and the Jewish leaders, particularly those who had been taunting him at the time. His death was indeed the Jews' immediate idea. But I believe Jesus prayed a time-release prayer, that he prayed proactively for generations yet to come. You remember when Mel Gibson released his film on the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. The Passion of the Christ was criticized for being anti-Semitic. They said that Mel overplayed the role of the Jews in the execution of Jesus. I don't think that at all. The Jews were culpable. But what people didn't realize was that Mel Gibson played a role in his own movie. Oh, you won't find his name listed as an actor in the credits, no. But you can see his hands in the film. For the hands that drove the nails into Jesus' hands belonged to none other than Mel Gibson. It was Mel's way of saying that all of us are guilty. That it was his sin and our sin that nailed Jesus to the wood. When Jesus asked God to forgive those who caused his death, he was praying in advance for you and for me. Perhaps you've heard the poem, And I cried, who nailed him there? This child of peace and mercy. Who nailed him there? Come and face me like a man. Who nailed him there? And the crowd began to mock me. I cried, oh my God, I just don't understand. Then I turned and saw the hammer in my hand. But Jesus speaks a second time. He speaks in Luke 23, verse 39. We hear from a brigand who was crucified with him. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Imagine the audacity of this. A condemned criminal joins in the jeers of the crowd. You know, even his sidekick rebukes his arrogance. We're told, but the other answering, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds? You know, the Greek word translated criminal, it means one who uses violence to rob openly, which means this man wasn't crucified for credit card theft. He had been an armed robber. He had been guilty of murder and mayhem. He undoubtedly had earned his sentence. But Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing. As his sidekick says, but this man has done nothing wrong. How he reached that conclusion, we really don't know. Perhaps he had known of Jesus earlier. Or maybe he had heard Pilate exonerate him when he tried to get them to choose Barabbas. Or he could have drawn the same conclusion reached by the centurion on duty. There was something inherent in Jesus that made him different from other men. The centurion had said, surely this was a righteous man. Whatever it was, criminals, no criminals. It was obvious to this thief that Jesus was not one of them. But this man went further. For he didn't just apprise Jesus' character. He asked something of him. 
And this is when you know a man or a woman is getting serious about following God. It's when they ask something of Jesus. He trusted Jesus with his eternal destiny. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we're told in verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In response to the man's faith, Jesus gave hope. He was given the promise that after he closes his eyes for the last time in this life, he'll reopen his eyes in the life to come, and Jesus will be with him in paradise. Notice it had nothing to do with the works of this man's hands. That promise, that hope, that gift. It had nothing to do with the works of his hands, for his hands were nailed to a piece of wood. It didn't have anything to do with the places his feet might go and spread God's kindness. Why? Because they too were nailed to that same wood. Certainly wasn't because he joined a church. Nailed to a cross, you can't join a church. There was only one thing this man could do, and that was have faith. And look to Jesus for his salvation. That was all he could do. But oh my, that was all he had to do. We all come to God by grace through faith. I often think of this boy's poor parents. Were they there? We don't know. Did they hear the exchange between their son and Jesus? We don't know. They may have been hiding in shame. Did they go to bed that night and every night thereafter thinking their son was burning in the flames of hell? They may well have. See, the moral of this story is you never really know what happens in a heart in its final minutes. You don't. There is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. I've heard it put, God included one deathbed conversion in the Bible to give us hope, but only one, hope, but only one not to create false hope. You may die an instant death and not get a final chance. It's certainly not guaranteed. That's why if you don't know Jesus, please come to him tonight, for it may be your last opportunity. But Jesus speaks a third time in John 19, verses 26 and 27. According to John, a group of four female followers had trudged behind Jesus to the place of the cross. Three Marys. Jesus' mother, the wife of Clopas, and Mary from Magdala, as well as his mother's sister. The other three Gospels mention one woman, Salome, not mentioned by John. She's the mother of James and John. It could be she was a fifth woman in the group, or she could have been the woman John's Gospel calls simply his mother's sister, which is a provocative idea. That would mean Salome was Jesus' aunt, making James and John his cousins. And if this is true, the family connection sheds interesting light on what happens next in John 19, verse 26. For when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that was a way of the way they referred to John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, 
that disciple took her to his own home. In ancient Israel, usually a widow was taken in by her relatives. It could be John and Mary were family. It's appalling to me what Roman Catholicism has done to Jesus' mother, Mary of Nazareth. They have made her co-redemptrix. In Roman Catholic doctrine, not only does Jesus give salvation, so does Mary. According to the Pope, Mary is, quote, the mother of God. She's sinless. She ascended to heaven. She was a perpetual virgin. And yet none of these ideas are biblical. Mary was a good girl. She was a godly girl. She was a simple girl we can admire and respect. But she wasn't close to divine. Mary was a sinner. After Jesus' birth, she had sexual relations with Joseph. In fact, she birthed at least six other kids. She eventually died and her body was buried. She has no more clout with God than any other believer. Yet don't be guilty of a Mary backlash. For she did follow Jesus. And she showed an exemplary devotion to her Lord. In fact, of all the the disciples, it's possible Mary made the greatest sacrifices to follow Jesus. You remember three decades earlier, her whole world had been turned upside down by the news that she would would miraculously birth a child. Now, fast forward three decades, she's at the foot of the cross, and Mary watches that child brutally tortured and executed. Mothers, put yourselves in her shoes. Taste of her tears. Her sacrifice had no atoning effects, but it was significant in God's sight. And it was an example to all of us of wholehearted surrender. Think of what must have gone through Mary's mind as she stood at the cross. Did she remember the myrrh, the embalming fluid that the wise men had brought to her baby? Did the purpose of her gift, of their gift, now finally dawn on Mary? Perhaps the words of old Simeon in the temple were still ringing in Mary's ears. You remember what he said? Yes, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now she feels the stab. Mary had surrendered all her dreams to the will of God. And now Jesus rewards her sacrifice by ensuring her future. He turns her care over to the apostle John. She would spend the rest of her life under John's roof. Well, Jesus' fourth saying from the cross is recorded in both Matthew 27, verse 46, and again in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. And this is the most cryptic and mystic of all the Lord's seven last sayings. Matthew 27, verse 45 reads, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The sixth hour was 12 noon. The ninth was 3 p.m. So for three hours, the world was blanketed in a supernatural darkness. Call it midnight at midday. Notice John says the darkness was over all the land. The Greek word translated land is geo, from which we get our word geography. The term implies a worldwide darkness, not just some local phenomena. Realize when Jesus was born, God's light came into the world. A star was seen shining in the night sky that guided wise men from the east to worship him. Now when Jesus dies, the sky turns black. It turns dark. The light has been snuffed out. 
at least for a short time. In verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That was the street language of the common folk. That's why the next line reads, Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. It sounded like Elijah, but his cry actually had nothing to do with Elijah. They had misunderstood what Jesus said. The words that Jesus shouted came from Scripture. They were the opening lines of Psalm 22, a remarkable psalm that describes in amazing detail the death and sufferings of the Messiah over a thousand years before they occur. In his final sayings, Jesus is tying his crucifixion to the promises of God from ages past. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this marks what is perhaps the most mysterious moment in all of history. For somehow, in some way, on the cross, God the Son became alienated from God the Father. A breach occurred in the Godhead. God somehow became severed from God. In John 8, verse 29, Jesus had said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. From eternity past, Jesus had enjoyed perfect, unbroken harmony with His Father. Yet now, He is stung by the Father's rejection. I believe when Jesus shrieked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the sins of all the men from all the ages were suddenly thrust upon his sacrificial shoulders. The lamb received his load. Remember, Jesus was spotless. He was sinless. Morally, his heart was as tender as a baby's behind. It would have been a shock to his system to feel a mere speck of sin. But imagine the piercing fright, the staggering horror that shook him when suddenly he sensed the sin of the whole world, the sin of the rapist, the sin of the serial killer, the child molester, the secret gossip, the greedy betrayer. The sin of all men was suddenly thrust upon his innocent shoulders. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 sums it up. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was God. He never ceased being God. He lived forever with the Father in warm, unbroken fellowship. Yet for a moment of time, the Son of God became an orphan child. God became separated from God so that we could be united to him forever. I've told this story many times, but it really is my best effort at illustrating what is a mysterious passage. My son, Zach, was two years old when he was hospitalized with a serious infection. The doctors wanted to feed him antibiotics through the IV, get into his system quicker. Well, when they went to insert the needle, the nurse asked us, Kathy and I, to leave the room. She said it would be painful for Zach, and she didn't want him to associate the pain with us. Being a nurse, Kathy was smart. She complied. Being something other than a nurse, I was dumb. 
and I didn't. I refused to budge. I was going to stand by my little buddy. I remember standing outside the procedure room door so I could be close, as close to Zach as possible. But I wasn't prepared for what happened next. For suddenly, the screaming started. And I can hear it today. I'll never forget my little guy shouting, I want my daddy! I want my daddy! I'm telling you, I could have jerked that door off its hinges. I could have, but I didn't. For love made me wait until the procedure was done. And I'll never forget, standing in that hallway, tears rolling down my cheeks, God spoke to me, now you know what I endured when my son died for you. I've never known God's love as strong as I did that day. Love made the father wait just beyond the door. He did it for you. Well, flip back to John 19, verse 28, for there we're told of Jesus' fifth statement. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. This was the cheap wine, the cheap vinegar wine that the Roman soldiers drank. Remember earlier in his ordeal, Mark tells us that Jesus was offered the myrrh. This was something different. This was a narcotic. This was sort of the ancient version of morphine. It would have numbed the victim, but Jesus rejected that help. When he chose not to take the myrrh, it would have been like a man scheduled for open heart surgery turning down the appropriate anesthesia. Amazingly, Jesus wanted to bear the full brunt of our sin. Jesus wanted to go to the extreme to pay our penalty in full. But now the lion's share of the work is finished. By this point, Jesus' throat is dry. His lips are cracked. His mouth needs to be moistened if he's to utter his final three statements. And so he says, I thirst. The soldiers, they fill a sponge with the sour sauce They put it on a long hyssop branch, and they lift it up to wet his lips. Jesus must have been several feet off the ground since they needed the hyssop to reach his lips with the sponge. Here so much is tied up in just two words. I thirst. Realize this is the only mention Jesus made of his physical status on the cross. And yet Psalm 22 provides us a prophetic account of what he actually experienced. The psalmist gives us a gut-wrenching description in verses 14 and 15 of Jesus on the cross. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. In other words, he's totally depleted. The body of Jesus is now racked with a fever. He suffers from dehydration. His bones have been dislocated. Jesus compares himself to a broken shard of pottery. His mouth is dry like dust. His lips are bleeding and parched. Isn't it ironic 
that the one who promised us, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink, now suffers from a lack of fluids. He cries, I am poured out like water. Jesus became thirsty physically so that he could quench our spiritual thirst. All he could taste was dust so that we can taste the sweet mercies of God. Jesus' sixth statement is found in John 19, verse 30. There we're told, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This phrase, it is finished, is actually just one word in the original Greek language, tetelestai. And it was used in a number of ways. A servant who had finished an assignment for his master, he would say, Tetelestai, I'm done, I'm finished, it's over. A priest, upon declaring faultless the sacrifice he had inspected, would declare, Tetelestai, it's ready. An artist, upon putting the finishing touches on a painting, might sigh, Tetelestai, it's done. And when a customer paid off his bill, the merchant would write across the ledger sheet, Tetelestai, paid in full. And on the cross, Jesus did all this and more. The servant of God completed his mission, the mission he had been sent to perform. God's high priest offered the faultless sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice. The artist of God's poema put the finishing touches on his portrait of salvation, the painting he'd been working on from creation. And our Redeemer paid in full the debt incurred by our sin. On the cross, Jesus tied up all the loose ends that had been dangling since the beginning of time. He completed the puzzle. He finished the picture. He made everything that's eternal finally and holy and beautifully perfect. On the cross, Jesus finished his work of redemption. And now all that comes afterward is simply the realization of that work. There was once an eccentric old preacher. His name was Alexander Wooten. He was working in the shop out behind his house one day when he was visited by a desperate young man. This boy just had to ask him. He said, sir, what must I do to be saved? Wooten responded, it's too late. It's too late. The young man panicked. He said, please, isn't there anything that I can do to be saved? The evangelist explained, it's too late for you to do anything. The work has already been done. All you have to do is believe. And this is the glorious hope of our gospel. Here again is the rallying cry of saints throughout the ages. Tetelestai, it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, all that needed to be done had been done for you and I to be saved and live a victorious life. Hebrews tells us that when Jesus returned to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because his work had been finished. And Jesus is still sitting down. He's still resting. And we need to rest with him. Let's trust in his finished work. And then the seventh And final statement from the cross is found in Luke 23, verse 46. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Again, Jesus was quoting scripture. Here he quotes Psalm 31 verse 5, which by the way is often used as a bedtime prayer for Jewish children. Isn't it amazing that despite the searing pain Jesus had to have experienced at that moment, he died a peaceful death. He died as a little child, curling up in his father's arms, ready to fall asleep. Peace and composure didn't escape our Lord, even in the throes of his death. The very last words of Jesus, the very last of Jesus' last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Notice the implication there is that no one took Jesus' life, not the Romans, not the Jews. Jesus gave his life voluntarily. And now God's son reassigns his spirit to return to his father in heaven. In fact, three short days later, his body and spirit will be reunited at a tomb just outside of Jerusalem. Forever, the work is finished. The price has been paid in full. Jesus is certain his sacrifice has been accepted. And he can now send his spirit back into the father's embrace, God's warrior heads home triumphant. And this is the destiny of all of us who follow Jesus. In your mind's eye tonight, see Jesus hanging on that cold, cruel cross, suffering unimaginable pain. Darkness is overhead. Torture is all around. Yet realize that all that is now at his back. The storms of life are now in his rearview mirror. He dismisses his spirit to a better place, to a forward place. He sends his spirit ahead to heaven. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this is true for us. For when a Christian faces death, this is the direction we're pointed to a forward place. If the Father's hands welcome the spirit of Jesus, trust me, his hands will be welcoming of you when you depart from this world. Why are we intimidated by death? Why are we afraid when the Father's arms are our ultimate destiny? Death is not our end. The storms of life are at our back. Like Jesus, our spirit is destined for God's hands. Henry Ward Beecher, he was a heretical preacher. He lived in the mid-1800s. He developed a compromised faith and lived a compromised life. His final words were, Now comes the mystery. Not a confident confession, in my opinion. Hey, for those of us who are in Christ, death should hold no big mysteries. When we follow Jesus, our spirit is committed. We are destined for the Father's hands. In comparison, when Thomas Edison, a devout believer, let out his dying words, Edison said simply, it is very beautiful over there. Heaven is very beautiful. And if you follow Jesus, you're headed over there. Well, seven last sayings from the cross. They confirm to us that our Savior prays for our forgiveness. That he cares for us all, from the condemned criminal to the faithful mom. He'll provide for us both a home, either on earth or in heaven. He suffered a breach, though we don't understand it. He suffered a breach to reach us. 
He emptied himself out of every ounce of energy so that by faith we can eat and drink of him and regain our strength. He paid our debt in full. And now our spirit is destined for the Father's hands. Aren't you glad? 